I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Being black and gay is such an interesting experience because you're just always so uh, talented. Uh, <laughs> like, think of every gay black person you know. At minimum, they can do the splits. <laughs> Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Brandon Ash Mohammed. you just heard from his new comedy album, Capricornication. He's a fantastic stand-up comic based in Toronto. He's actually the first gay black man in Canada to release a comedy album. We'll be talking to him in a little bit to see how he's really forging a way for queer comics of color in the country. So this is our special Pride episode. June is usually this month where our community gets together to celebrate and party and uplift each other. But we're also still in the middle of a global pandemic. So Pride festivals have been canceled all over the world. So when we first started thinking about doing this episode, we wanted to create something that felt sort of celebratory and that could maybe connect us in this new context. Um, But obviously, you know, the mood has really changed over the last few weeks, and rightfully so. Exactly a month ago, George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis, and that event has led to what I think we can now all call a revolution, a long overdue revolution for black equality. We've seen protests all across the United States, all across Canada, all across the world. You know, I remember the first weekend when I went down um, uh, to downtown Montreal to march for the first like Black Lives Matter rally here. It was just like such a reminder that we're not safe until everyone is safe. And in a way, I think this is the reminder I personally needed and I think that we needed as a community. Pride was always about fighting police brutality. And as a cis white gay man, I have realized that there is a lot that I might have taken for granted and there's a lot I still need to learn. Well, this is really a moment for listening Mm -hmm. and for self-examining. And as white people... Well, I guess I would say I'm white passing. I've never been comfortable with, like, addressing my Egyptian heritage as, like, that making me a person of color. I've lived my life as a white person. But I think that this is a moment where we're being told to examine our whiteness in a way that, I mean, I think that people have wanted us to examine our whiteness for a long time, and we haven't fully done it. When I say we, I'm not saying just you and I. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about white people in general. And... I agree with you. This is a moment of facing things that are very difficult, facing our own unconscious complacency and systemic racism. And I don't think that, you know, it's sort of hard to look at because it's not a system that we've ever wanted to be a part of, but we are. And we have to confront that and we have to acknowledge what that means. And which for me as a person who is like deeply sensitive, deeply empathetic is a hard 
fact mm-hmm. to look at. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I have had my moments where I've really felt like a complete monster. Really? Yeah. I don't feel like a complete monster. I feel like it's a moment of inventory for me, an inventory of blind spots and, you know, whether it's queer history. You know, I've only in recent years really learned about how the pride movement and the gay movement and a movement for gay liberation, as, as it was called back then, um, was born. Like, for example, I never knew who Marsha P. Johnson was until a few years ago when I started reading about her story and when I saw the documentary on Netflix. Which I highly recommend everyone watch. It's so important. Marsha P. Johnson was the Rosa Parks of the LGBT movement. Darling, I want my gay rights now! Street people and the drag queens were the vanguard of the movement. What really clicked to me was imagining the police brutality ongoing in queer spaces in the 60s before it was fully legal to be an out queer person and out gay men in my example. You know, that morning of June 28th, 1969, the people at the Stonewall Inn had enough, you know, and there had been different protests against police brutality before that by gay people and queer people. But it was really that moment and reading about it and reading like what Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and the other trans people who were there and, and, and the other queer people who were there were dated against police and they burned down cars and they were fed up and they've had enough. So just to remember that so many of my rights are connected to people being fed up and having enough is giving me, I feel, the empathy that I need to understand that right now people are fed up. It was a breaking point in 1969 when cops raided the Stonewall Inn, and now it's a breaking point with the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. Another blind spot I have is that I know a lot about the movement in the U.S., but as a Canadian, I don't know as nearly as much about Canadian history and and how you know, people of color and also indigenous people have been treated here and that genocide and the police brutality happening still to this day. People like indigenous people are being murdered in Canada as we speak. And since the beginning of COVID, there's been a surge of people being murdered in Canada. And I feel sometimes what's going on in the U.S. is a cop out, is a way for us Canadians to be like, oh, we're not as bad or, you know, but we're just like our brand of politeness is just a different evil. Absolutely. And, And to also see that, the queer movement has been very white in the last couple of decades. And we know now about black uh, trans women who started the, the yeah. movement in the 60s. But I feel that it's it, it, it might be perceived by some indigenous people as a settler movement. Right. And, and how like queer people like me can colonize their spaces. And I, I need to like really educate myself. But again, I'm, I'm inspired. I don't feel... Right. I don't feel like a monster like you would you would do. I'm just like, wow, there's so much I need to learn. I mean, I think the reason that I was feeling that way is because of my own white fragility, which, to be honest, is something that I never mm-hmm. really considered. I think that was one of my personal major blind spots is my discomfort at hard conversations. Just in general, in my life, I've always been scared of conflict. I think for me, it might come from a different place. You know, I think that fear for me is really rooted in, you know, this like childhood trauma of being bullied and just wanting to be invisible all the time. But I know that this moment is calling for us to, like you said, take inventory, examine our own traumas, examine the connection between our traumas and how we've reacted to that and how those behaviors have actually been part of this really 
systemic problem, this white supremacy that we've all participated in so unconsciously. And this kind of work of recognizing our complacency is something that requires a true commitment. You know, I think that what we're seeing, you know, within communities of people of color right now is that there is a fear that this conversation is going to lose steam, that people are not going to stay committed to the cause. I personally feel so committed, and I hope that through this show we can encourage people to do the same. Like, we need to keep having these conversations until we finally arrive at something better than where we're at right now. My name is Brandon Ash Muhammad. I like all my names because when you read them, the last one is a twist no one sees coming. <laughs> it's always like Brandon Ash, who's this nice white Muhammad? <laughs> Even though my last name is Muhammad, my family is not that Muslim. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, we've actually only been to a mosque once. And it was in the video game Prince of Persia. <laughs> Brandon Ash Mohammed is a comedian based in Toronto, and he's the founder of The Ethnic Rainbow, a comedy night for queer comics of color. He's also just released his first comedy album called Capricornication. Love that title. This is also a major milestone moment because in releasing this album, Brandon has become the first gay black man in Canada to put out a comedy album. Being a trailblazer, that's so Capricorn of him. What are the defining traits of a Capricorn? Um, they're natural leaders. Capricorn is also an earth sign, and Brandon self-identifies as thick. He jokes about it on the album, so he, I would assume he would love the natural pleasures of the world, including food and sex. That's a Capricorn thing? That's pretty Capricorn to be like really interested in like the world that surrounds them. They're not really into the sort of like higher level or spiritual. They really love to focus on what's around them. Well, we got to speak to the Capricorn himself, Brandon, at his home in Toronto, and he told us about when he was a kid and first realized that he was funny. I always had a very high voice. Like, for a little, for a young boy, I had a very high voice, and at, I was going to camp this one year, and I was like, how am I going to, like, cover this up? So I was like, I'm just going to speak in accents the entire time. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I started speaking in like a British accent and this guy was like, yo, you sound exactly like Hermione. And then all the, all of these guys would be like, oh my God, say, start, it was, um, say, oh, Harry, wrong hole. And I would say that over and over again, over and over again. And all these like little boys would like get so, would like laugh so hard, but then also get like really turned on by me, like speaking like Hermione and saying inappropriate things. <laughs> and I became wild. Like, and that's how I discovered I was funny. This is weird, but also kind of hot. I didn't know people had such a yeah. thing for Hermione. I didn't know she was a sexual icon. She was, I guess so. I guess she was. So I understand why you went into comedy then, if it was a way to turn on people around you. Yeah. You said you started 10 years ago, 2010? I started in 2010 when I went to Humber College for the comedy writing and performance program. That was like my first introduction into all of this. I remember what I stopped performing for a while 
when I was like three or two years in after Humber because everyone was just so hateful and I had gotten nominated for this award. It was called the Tim Sims Encouragement Fund and me and my friend Franco were the first people of color to have been nominated for it since like 2008 at that point. And um, people got super upset and people were just like, oh, they're trying to make it multicultural this year. You guys don't deserve it. They're just putting you in there because because they need to fill some boxes. And wow. then that fucked with me. And I, I stopped performing. But also at Humbert, like I had this like crazy director who um, I was told he essentially like picked somebody he wanted to like destroy. He wanted to destroy their confidence. And he didn't like how like respected I was and felt like I was too confident. So he picked me. We did a... Uh, Parody of the Grease, Grease the Musical, about the Greek financial crisis, also called Grease. <laughs> and, and he told me and my friend, Denisha, that we couldn't play the leads, even though we were the only two people that could really sing. And that was because, first of all, first off, it was there was no black people in Greece. That's what we were told. And then the second time, it was... Um, because we didn't look enough like Olivia Newton-John and um, John Travolta, and the audience wouldn't understand it if me and her played that part. Mm. What you're describing, you know, is so difficult to overcome. And when you're in a space where you don't see other people like yourself, were there examples that you could follow that maybe helped you navigate that time? When I was that age, I remember Googling gay black comedians and then not finding anything and having to like find like one article about like one, this one British comedian. And I didn't have anyone. I had like Wanda Sykes, I remember, but I remember I really liked Sarah Silverman at the time. But also Margaret Cho. I also really loved Margaret yeah, Cho. Yeah, Margaret Cho's a big one for me too. Yeah, I, I remember Ka Margaret Cho was the first comedy show. It was my first comedy show. And that was how I learned about Grindr. <laughs> <laughs> how were you finally able to find your way in this comedy world that you never fully saw yourself reflected in? Um, I realized that I am the one that is going to be paving this path here in Canada. I want for like, if some like little like, like gay black boy or whoever Google's like gay black Canadian comedian, I want them to be able to like see me and be like, oh look, there's somebody like me. I can do this too. So that's kind of like what kept me going. I once did this joke and there was another gay black dude in the audience and he started laughing super hard. And then I noticed he had crutches and I was like, what happened? <laughs> and what happened was, is he had hurt himself voguing while doing the splits. And I was just like, yo, that is the gayest yet blackest way to hurt yourself. <laughs> like, y'all think bigotry is decimating my community? But also it's gymnastics. The comedy landscape, especially here in Canada, as the three of us know so well just from being a part of it, is still so white. Is there something that you think can be done, whether it's by fellow comedians or whether it's by people working in the comedy world that can facilitate you know, finding a way to bring these voices into the fold? I think that they need to stop filling quotas because they're just like, oh, we have this queer check mark, check, check. And what they don't realize is that when they put groups of people in these boxes, it creates hierarchies. So when you put just all of the gay people in the box, in a box and be like, oh, this is like the, the LGBT category, you're going to put the white queer people at the top of that mm -hmm. because that is who is most in line 
uh, with what you think is funny or what you think is whatever. And because of that, it's going to put people like myself in at disadvantages. So I think it's just that, like, instead of fill, trying to fill a quota, they really need to, like, actively try to make a change in how they're thinking about casting things and doing things in this industry. And you created the, the Toronto show, The Ethnic Rainbow, uh, yes. which celebrated two years this year. So what are the challenges in creating a show like this when it's like totally needed, but I'm sure you faced some headwinds? It was interesting because, so, so The Ethnic Rainbow is Canada's first comedy show that features exclusively queer comedians of color, right? So when I always wanted to do this show, but when I was coming up, the only queer comedians of color that I knew of in Canada were myself and Martha Chavez. So for years and years and years and years, I wanted to do this show and I couldn't do it because there wasn't enough comedians. And then there was like a, like a queer comedy boom that happened in Toronto like two or three years ago and that's how I was finally able to do it. But I remember when uh, the first interview, one of the first interviews I did for the Ethnic Rainbow, the host was just like, uh, Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world and has a thriving gay population. Why do we even need this show? And wow. I wanted to be like, because of you, because of you asking questions like that, like, like I have been doing this for so long and haven't felt reflected in spaces that I, on paper, should feel like welcome and reflected, and I haven't, and that's why I created the show. Yeah. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder, or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have, or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Growing up queer in a West Indian family is very interesting. Um, I remember when I was coming out to my family, I sat everyone down and I was like, guys, I have to tell you something. And they're like, what is it, Brandon? And I was like, I can't tell you. And then I ran away. Um, <laughs> and I did that five times that day. <laughs> Finally, my mother was like, okay, Brandon, you're either going to tell us you're gay or you're pregnant. <laughs> You just released your first album. It's called Capricornication. Yes. Well, I'm the queen of the Capricorn. <laughs> Are you a proud Cap? I am a proud Cap. Okay. I'm very much a Capricorn. As a but... Cap, you're in good company also. You, Michelle Obama's a Cap. Um, Gail King. Uh, Tiger Woods. Yeah. Timmy Chalamet is one. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Ooh. Ryan Seacrest. Ooh. And Ricky Martin. Oh, Ricky Martin. <laughs> uh, there are some famous Capricorns. Did you, are you, how into astrology are you? I'm, I'm really only into the Capricorn stuff, <laughs> which is like the most Capricorn thing. Or I'm just like, I'm only into myself. One of my favorite anecdotes is you describing that your mother actually went into labor with you at a Paula Abdul concert. At a Paula Abdul concert. concert. So you yeah. say on the album that like clearly you never had a chance at heterosexuality. <laughs> I never did. I honestly never did. I mean, obviously that was like a little like, that was a little exaggeration. But Paula Abdul did blow a kiss at my mom, she said, when she was pregnant with me. So I think that okay, was okay, that's like a the blessing. Kiss of, the <laughs> kiss of gay. Straight yeah. up, no. That is, Straight no. up, no. 
I say straight up yes. That's an amazing <laughs> yeah. blessing. Um, were you always so sure and comfortable with your sexual identity growing up? Like, no, I remember, like, I, um, like, no and yes. Like, I always would, I would try to, like, hold it in and not, and try to, like, say that I didn't like, like, Sailor Moon and, like, the Spice Girls and all this stuff. And then I would try and be like, no, like, no, I'm, I'm, I don't like that. But then I would just, like, five minutes later be like, singing, like, Wannabe and the theme song <laughs> for Sailor Moon and trying to transform. And, yeah, but, um... I don't know. I, I did definitely have dealt with, like, some of that, like, self-hating stuff. But um, everyone has always been, like, pretty supportive. Like, I remember when I was a kid, my dad would be like, oh, like, one day you and your partner are going to be, are going to come and do this with us. And I was just like, what the, what the hell does this person mean? <laughs> <laughs> your family is a big part of your of your album. I, I loved it. You know, your your grandmother, even your great-grandmother is, is on it. For listeners who don't really know you, how would you... How would you describe your heritage exactly? So I'm Trinidadian. I was mostly raised around my Trinidadian grandparents, but being Trinidadian makes you multiple things at once because both my um, both of my parents are mixed. I say that my dad is white, but he's like very white passing. Yeah, because the way you talk about your dad on the album <laughs> as a white man is hysterical. Yeah, well, he used to tell people that he was a white man. So okay, okay. so my mom is is essentially half. Indian and then black Spanish and other stuff and then my dad is half like historic I don't know how to describe it like Nova Scotian black which is like the historic black oh, Africville yeah, yeah Africville the okay. historic black population of Canada and then he's half like Irish Nova Scotian or whatever so I come from like both of those worlds and like seeing how those things are and those are like really important to me but especially like my Caribbean heritage that's like that's what I feel like I'm most comfortable with and what I most identify with. And... Do you feel like as a black man, there are different parameters you need to follow in order to be accepted within the gay community? Like, have you always felt accepted within the gay community? What I've noticed is that when I perform for audiences that are predominantly white gay men, they do not laugh and they do not react and they always mean mug me. Wow, and I always I'm feel really shocked. scared to go in those spaces. Usually, like, I remember I did this show with my friend Hoda one time, and Hoda Hersey's very funny, um, and half of the audience was white gay men and one black gay black dude, and the other half of the audience was white women. When she performs, she has problems with white women audience members, and none of the white women were laughing at her, but all the white gay men were, like, dying. And then when I went on, it was the opposite. So it was all the white women were laughing at me and the one gay black man, and all of the, like, white gay men were just, like, mean mucking me and I was just like I don't know do you have a sense of why that is like do you are you able to make sense of that maybe it's just like the way that that I feel like white gay society is it's just like I'm the complete opposite I'm not like a like fit blonde like twink or whatever I'm like a voluptuous black man I think it's like you know I think as like queer kids we grow up feeling like outsiders and feeling like we're trying to survive elementary school, we're trying to survive middle school, you know, we're anticipating that on the other side of these experiences is going to be this community that's waiting for us with open arms and we're going to receive this unconditional acceptance and welcome. Yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. Like, do you remember your first, like, queer show? Um, I do remember, like, I started comedy in 2013 and 
same as you, like there were no, I had to navigate these like cis, straight, white spaces that were looking back on it very unsafe for me, but I just was so determined to do what I wanted to do that I just did it. And honestly, like what you're describing reminds me more of like the first pride that I went to. So this was at a weird time in my life where I still didn't have like a full understanding of myself as a trans person. And it was just this like very uncertain time in my life. I really didn't have any confidence. And there was this disco singer, Patsy Galland, who was performing and I really wanted to see her. I loved her. And I got there like super early and ended up running into her. And she like invited me to her sound check. And I just kind of spent the whole day hanging out with her backstage where I was like seeing drag queens and queer performers for the first time. But like no one would really look at me. No one would talk to me. Like there was just this coldness that I felt. And I think that I felt that a lot in my like early days of like going to gay clubs. Not that I was ever a big partier, but just and I remember feeling so let down. Like I thought that I would come to Pride and like that this is where I belonged. And then I got there and it's like, well, I don't really belong here either. That's how I felt, too. My first ever queer show was it was somewhere in the Toronto Gay Village. And then I remember I was like, ooh, I'm going to do it. They're going to be like, ooh, my sister's here, yeah! And that did not happen. That did not happen. They just, like, were, like, heckling me the entire time and, like, trying to guess the punchline of my jokes. And then I remember there was, like, this straight white woman that went on after, and she just, like, destroyed. And I was just like, oh, I can't. I guess that's what they like. Okay. Do you do you think the the current moment that we're in, you know, with Pride Corporate being canceled this year and and Good. the Black Lives Matter <laughs> uprising, um, do you think that the gay community and the queer community will finally face the racism and the misogyny and the transphobia that is permeating it? I mean, I hope they do. I don't know if they will, but I'm hoping that they're taking this time where they're not out in, like, the parade to, like, go do some research and watch some documentaries and read some books. <laughs> well, what yeah. what do you, like, what has been your relationship to Pride in general, and how do you feel like it's changed for you this year? I never, I've only gone to Pride, like, a couple of times. I remember I went to Pride um, one year, and I think I was in a pro-circumcision float, on a pro-circumcision <laughs> float. My friend Patrick had this friend, and um, they worked at this company and they were Jewish and she invited him to be on this float, but they needed more people to be on the float. So I was like, oh, I always wanted to be on one of these floats. <laughs> so I went on the float and then I found out that it was like a pro-circumcision float or something. <laughs> and they just had like the Israeli flag and people were like booing them and it was really weird. But I just remember like with Toronto Pride, they, there was never like, I see in other Prides they have like black, queer and trans events, but they don't have that in Toronto Pride. And um, I remember when I was in that, I wore this, like, I wanted to, like, represent. So I wore this, like, um, it was, I wore this, like, African dashiki outfit. And then I remember I was, like, on the parade. And then there was this one black dude. And he was also wearing, like, a dashiki outfit. And then we, like, saw each other. And I was like, we're representing, we're representing, we're representing. <laughs> he was like, my brother. And then he, like, came up to the float and, like, gave me a fist bump. And I was just like, that, that was the most representation I feel like I ever saw in pride. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. You know, we're talking about how different pride is, but it's not really different. It's really just about the idea of like we are returning to the roots of protest. You know, this is necessary. It's not about what people want. It's this is what needs to fucking happen and it is so overdue. 
And I think that in sharing what we've just been sharing about our experiences in Pride and within the queer community and not always necessarily receiving that like automatic acceptance, sometimes I think that within this community, we like to think of this community as a whole and that we're always together and that we're on the same page. But clearly, that's probably not the case. We're not. Like, do yeah, you see like those divisions, Brandon? Like, what are I the see divisions, those divisions you see? Like, hundred percent, because the Black Lives Matter Toronto. I think it was three or two years ago when they like stopped they shut the down. Yeah. they were just like the police need to be removed from Pride. Blah blah blah. And there was just all these people being like, "I will not be going back to Pride if the police are not." accepted in them and i'm just like oh my god these people don't know their heritage they do not know why this was started and what the police has historically done to our community and then at the same time as that was the next year it was um the bruce MacArthur stuff where there had clearly been a serial killer um targeting gay men of color in um toronto's gay village and everyone had been saying it for a while, and the police were like, no, there's no, there's no proof of that. There's nothing, nothing. And then it came to be that there actually was. And it wasn't, they didn't get involved until um, a white man, a white gay man went missing. That was when they started, like, looking for people. And, yeah, and people still don't seem to, don't see that. People don't seem to... to take that into consideration and look at these things. They're just like, oh no, everyone should be accepted. Pride is about everybody. And that means the police and blah, 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 blah. I do not know if the world is ready to deal with their history and their privilege. It's definitely a, a collective undertaking. Um, on, on an astro note, Brandon, you're, you're Capricorn, and I don't know if you know that, but right now, the astrologers are saying that everything is going on is explained by the crazy traffic in the Capricorn sign. There's so many planets in there. So uh -oh. I, want, I want to call it the Capricorn. That's what I'm doing. It's a Capricorn revolution. <laughs> it's like a Capricornication is like coming to life. Yeah, it's all it's all coming oh, together. Oh damn! I feel like my Sailor Moon fantasies come to <laughs> finally transforming, and I'm gonna I'm gonna defeat some people. I'm ready. Moon Tiara magic. <laughs> Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? So, Brandon, on Chosen Family, we usually do this segment called Obsessions, where we celebrate something, usually a book, an album, a song, a movie that we're just completely obsessed with because we're both very obsessive people. And I know that you have such a deep connection and passion for pop culture. So we want to know what you're obsessed with right now. Right now, I am obsessed with Tina Turner. <laughs> Love it. If you were to recommend to our listeners one Tina song, what would it be? I'm going to recommend two. Typical Male is my favorite Tina Turner song. And the second one is One of the Living from the Mad Max soundtrack, which won a Grammy. What is it about Tina that you're drawn to? I think it was just that like Tina has gone through so much and at a time where like none of this is would it essentially would be possible for a black woman and especially of a black woman of a certain age. So I'm like, yo, if she can get through all of this stuff 
and like do so amazing that I was just like, yo, I can do all of this stuff. Like this, this is not as hard as what Tina Turner went through. So like, she's just been like an inspiration to me to like keep going always and just like persevere no matter what. She's like a higher power. Yeah. I'm so lucky that I got to see her perform on her last tour. Me too. I went to the Montreal show. It oh was my God, phenomenal. Was she was like so amazing. 69 years old, about to turn 70. And she is still up there in like stiletto heels, looking better than anyone. She does not age. She barely ages. Like I was watching a recent interview with her, with my grandmother. And she's like, oh, this is an old interview. Turn this off. And I was like, this was last year. And she was just like, oh. <gasps> And my grandmother was so shocked. <laughs> I think that's another reason why I like Tina Turner. Because when my grandmother, when I was born, my grandma, people used to call my grandmother Tina Turner because she looked like Tina Turner. And so I guess I'm like also like equating Tina Turner as like my grandmother. Because I always think of them as like the same person. Yeah, that's, that's really, really sweet. sweet. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your Tina obsession with us. And we're obsessed no with you. Yeah, yes. we're obsessed with I'm you. I'm obsessed with you. <laughs> and I'm so excited that for your album to be out in the world, I think this is such a landmark accomplishment. Thank and I think you that, so much, Trina. It means so much to but me. But I'm serious. Like, that. I think that in the way that you're describing, like, looking at Tina and being like, look at what she can do, like, just as you wanted, just as it's been your goal, like, you're making it come true. People are going to look up at you in the same way and be like, well, Brandon did it, so I can do it too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Bye. Brandon Ash Mohammed. The clips you heard throughout the show were from Brandon's new album, Capricornication, which is available on all streaming services and also on howlandroarrecords.com. 100% of the sales of Capricornication for the first month will be donated to charities that are focused on Black and Indigenous queer, trans, and two-spirit people in Canada. We also highly recommend that you follow Brandon on social media. His social media presence is so great. And also right now, just really informative. He's been posting these really great bootleg black history lessons that he's been writing himself. And I think it's just a great, easy way to get yourselves educated on stories that you probably have not heard before, but that you should know about. So you can find Brandon on Insta and Twitter at comedy one So this is um, pretty much my story. Um, I was about 20 and I was working at a bougie coffee shop at the Trudeau Airport. So through that job, I met uh, I met an array of wonderful individuals who came from just different backgrounds. I became really good friends with two guys. Like they really made every shift go by so fast. They were fun, they were compassionate, outgoing, hilarious. And they were also openly proud gay men. So in 2007, they, they pretty much encouraged me to volunteer with them during Pride. And, um, you know, I was wondering what it would be like. How would I be perceived as a black female? Um, I know it's kind of silly, but growing up, I associated the LGBTQ2 plus community as a, as a male-dominated community. You know, like, would I be conscious and slightly uncomfortable of the fact that I was the only person represented my race amongst another sea of, of white people? But I remember the minute we got to Place Emily Gamelin, those concerns were far remo- removed, and it was replaced by exhilaration, fun, uh, acceptance. 
um, we stood pretty much on the corner of St. Catherine and St. Hubert collecting money in tin cans in order to financially support pride initi- initiatives. Like we were shaking those cans to the sound of the music, laughing, dancing, connecting. Um, for one of the rare times in my life, I just felt really comfortable being myself. So that's it. Thanks. Bye. As it's Pride and again, we're not able to be together this year, we still wanted to feel connected. So we set up a hotline, which is kind of a dream come true for me. And we set it up so that you could call in and share your Pride memories with us. So my um, Pride story takes place in Winnipeg, Manitoba in 2010. I myself am from rural Manitoba. And this was like my first big um, Pride event that I ever attended. So Winnipeg Pride usually takes place at the beginning of June, and it's like a weekend of events, and it all culminates in a big party, grand ball, and it was like a white-themed party, so everyone had to wear white clothes, and then there was black light so that the white clothing would light up. Um, And me and two friends decided to get like custom white tank tops made with like custom logos written on them. So my logo that I chose was not myself tonight in reference to uh, Christina Aguilera's song, the lead single from her album, Bionic. The rest of my outfit was like short silver booty shorts, the not myself tonight tang top. And I had eyelash extensions and eyeliner on as well as like hair done and big earrings. And I felt super sexy and cute. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to embody the message of this song and it's going to, I'm going to be not myself tonight. And I'm going to like have a hookup and whatever. Cause I was still pretty sexually prude at the time, I'd say, or just scared and hadn't really explored. Um, but anyway, I didn't get the reactions I was hoping to get from my outfit. I remember someone I knew from uh, high school days, we were both in Central Manitoba Youth Choir together and he was already out at the time. I was still closeted but he was a huge Britney fan and would always perform like dances to Britney songs at choir uh, talent contests. He came up to me at, during the event and was like, you look super cute, but I'm not a fan of the Christina reference. And that's kind of when I realized like, oh shit, like this song is not cool and it's not going to get me laid tonight. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying to go for the overtly, um, slutty thing and it backfired and I did not end up hooking up with anyone that night. This is the story of the legend of Tommy, the first known case in recorded history of someone being booed at Pride. Once upon a time, there was a man named Lester who was invited to join his company's float in the San Francisco Pride Parade. Lester decided to invite his ex-boyfriend Tommy. Everyone called him Speed Freak Tommy because his name was Tommy and because he was a speed freak. Tommy was given strict instructions to meet Lester at the beginning of the parade to join the rest of the people on the float. At the appointed time, everyone boarded, but Tommy was nowhere in sight. The float took off and slowly made its way down the parade. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the dulcet tones of the Scissor Sisters grew closer and closer. To everyone's horror, Tommy had finally shown up. He was in front of the float, shirtless, wearing skin-tight neon sugar shorts on rollerblades with a boombox balanced on his shoulder. Tommy was being pulled by his two ancient golden retrievers, 
Lucy, and Bella. Somehow, Tommy had interpreted Lester's invitation to be on the float as lead the parade. What the fuck are you doing, speed freak Tommy? Lester screamed. Get the dogs and get on the float. But this was Tommy's moment. And what a moment it was. Tommy, gliding and gyrating, energized by the teeming masses and his canine chariot of gold. It's hard to pinpoint the exact moment it all went wrong. Some say it was when Tommy's rollerblades got caught in the tram tracks and he dropped the boombox, smashing it to bits. Others say it was when Lucy and Bella got their paws stuck in the subway grate, their plaintive cries of yip, 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 keeping time with the thumping beat of take your mama out. Where there were once cheers, there were now jeers. At one point, someone threw a can of corn. Tommy, knees bloodied and his rollerblades still stuck in the tracks, was eventually rescued by a pair of kind-hearted dykes on bikes. Lester scrambled off the float to retrieve the dogs and gently lifted them to the safety of the float. And that is the legend of Tommy, the first known case in recorded history of someone being booed at Pride. Uh, my most memorable Pride was my first Pride. I was 16. Uh, I was in Vancouver. I was doing a summer exchange program. Um, I had just come out to my friends and at school before leaving for Vancouver. Um, the day I left, my parents found out that I was gay. I have born-again Christian parents and uh, knew that it did not go down well. But they didn't know that I knew, and I wasn't supposed to know that they knew. Um, so we kind of left it like that. So my summer in D.C., I decided to just, uh, live my best gay life, knowing that it was going to be hell when I returned. Um, I decided to volunteer for Pride. I'd met a new queer family while I was there, kissed my first boy, but I ended up being invited to a rave the night before. So I went to this big outdoor rave. I'd done ecstasy, and we went straight from the rave back to Pride where I had to volunteer. So I hadn't slept at all but I remember it being such a happy and joyful experience I had apprehensions about pride for some reason I guess I only saw the like over sexualized bits about it when I was younger and having a family that wasn't super LGBTQIA friendly also kind of warped my opinions of what pride could be but when I experienced it firsthand all I saw was just love generosity families coming together, all these disparate parts of our population coming together in joy, which was just so beautiful. However, when I got back to my family at the end of the summer, uh, it was really brutal, and I had to hide a lot of aspects of who I was for years. Um, so my pride story is the first one. Um, when I came to Montreal, um, I came from Newfoundland, and I went to my very first Pride ever, and a friend of mine was visiting. He came at the same time. He didn't move here or anything. But we got super dressed up and took our hula hoops out, and we were welcomed into the parade and walked with a group of people. Then I got day drunk um, at a cafe that a friend was working at, and then we kept going well until the next day when I had to walk home with no shoes because my feet were hurting so bad. It was really super fun. Montreal Pride has always been like that for me. It's always been inclusive. And I'm a, a straight person uh, that leans towards queer, but really I'm straight. And um, 
Pride has just been a, a great thing, colorful and amazing. And that's my story. Thank you. A big thank you to all of you who called in to share your Pride memories. We loved hearing them. It's a very different Pride this year, but I think it's such a good opportunity to go back to Pride's roots and reflect on what it truly means to be inclusive and to fight for everyone's rights. It might not have been the Pride festival or the Pride season we wanted, but I think it was the Pride we needed. We'll post some resources on the Facebook group, places you can donate to in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as Indigenous rights organizations. And we'll also post links to documentaries and books so we can just keep this really important conversation going, which, again, is the most important part we have to stay committed. And to end things on an exciting note, we're happy to announce that Chosen Family will be back for a third season. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) We really want to push the conversation forward in our third season, and we want you all to be a part of that. So... If any of you listening have any ideas for things you'd like to see us do in season three, conversations you think we should have, people we should speak to, please let us know on our Facebook group. We really want to hear from you. Or even send us a DM. No. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. No, we have to keep some. You can send Thomas a DM. (laughs) Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Our digital producers are Judy Zigu and Sarah Clayton. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Narani is the executive producer. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Fi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Pride, and we'll see you in the fall. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.